data now a weapon? Is it the way forward? Is data a window into our future? Is it the new oil? Is data a geopolitical game changer? Is it a friend or foe to American democracy? How do we know? How do we know anything? Welcome to Data Reveal. Monica Breidenbach, this week's episode on the Data Reveal podcast, is a self-described disruptor of the status quo in order to improve organizational effectiveness. Now, that sounds like an oxymoron. How do you disrupt and then improve? Don't the people and the things that you disrupt then get weaker or less than improved? Well, in the world of data and workforce planning and HR, you need to do both. And what I hear Monica describe is a vision for the next generation digital workforce that probably will take a lot of work and effort and difficulty to get there in order to attract and retain this new talent, these digital natives that need to come into the workforce as baby boomers are retiring in large numbers. But when we do get that right, and someone like Monica is the one, I think, or one of the voices that can help us get there, uh, aligning data and the workforce and digital systems and digital natives can unlock a lot of organizational effectiveness. So it's the right kind of creative disruption that we're talking about here. And of course, the alternative is much worse than doing this sort of thing, in a sense, to yourself across government. And testament to Monica's ability to do this and her recognized ability to give this vision some reality, she started when we were on our interview in a role as a human capital strategist for the Office of Personnel Management, OPM. Since then, she's been tapped by the White House to join as a workforce policy advisor to the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, an organization that has some fantastic alums. And I'm excited to see what she can do in that role and to hear what comes out of what I think are the very thoughts you're about to hear in this episode. Welcome to the Data Reveal podcast. Mark Fidelli here once again with Courtney Hastings and Andrew Churchill and our special guest, Monica Breidenbach. Monica, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're excited to have you. And uh, Andrew and Courtney and I have been talking a lot about over several weeks sort of changes in the data world, and you're right in the middle of that. So if you don't mind, uh, sort of, we know you're a human capital strategist at OPM. And you've been in the federal workforce for many years. What's going on? What what what's captured your attention these days? And uh, before we jump into, you know, some of our questions, just what what are you watching? What are you tracking? What's interesting to you? It's all interesting to me. I mean, I I really really geek out when it comes to data workforce planning, how those two live together in the same sphere. Definitely tracking the sort of crazy labor shift that we're in right now. We've got this great resignation. Um, We've, of course, got the talent war. This isn't new, right? It's 2021. But I was talking about these things with leadership over at USDA back in 2019. So it's, it's taken some people by surprise. But I think if we really look back, we see that it was always coming. Find it interesting. That's great. So you know, Courtney and Andrew and I, uh, Courtney, Andrew, welcome. We're in the data world. We spend all of our time helping government agencies and st- systems integrators and technology players sort of find 
the data that answers the hard questions. And you're asking and answering a lot of hard questions these days. So, you know, just the quick disclaimer for everybody listening, this is uh, not representative of Click's perspective or uh, these are our own opinions, but jumping right in, what's your opinion on data and how it can help right now with the things that you're tracking and that you're looking at? How does it help in the workforce space sort of drive confident and non-biased decision-making, realizing non-biased is its own thing to talk. We'll, we'll get to that word, but trustworthy decision-making. Tell us a little bit about just sort of the ground truth you live in every day with data. Well, the federal government um, is the nation's largest employer. And as such, we sort of need to be leading best model or uh, model best practices that are going to demonstrate to the American people that the services that they're receiving from our workforce represent the population that we service. Um, so to make data readily available in the form of government-wide dashboards is how we can show them that we're doing that and that our employee demographics and our hiring practices support diversity, equity, uh, inclusion, and accessibility efforts. I'm so glad that you said that because I was interviewed recently for an article about data and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they asked me a question and it was kind of hard not to giggle at it, but it was, what does data have to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion? And my response was, it has everything to do with that because how would you possibly know, you know where you stand and, and how you're progressing if you don't have data to support it? Yeah, absolutely. From a government-wide perspective, do you feel like the government overall has sort of a pretty even or pretty uneven approach to managing its workforce data? Like, obviously, that's a hard problem, but in the trenches, how have you seen sort of the, the big problems addressed across the board? Is Like, is the military way different than sort of the healthcare agencies from the financial agencies? Like, break that down a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, you know, to my knowledge, uh, right now, most agencies only have access to their own workforce data. And even that is generally onboard information. So, but government-wide, we sort of need this centralized dashboard for both comparison and benchmarking purposes, either for ourselves, but also against each other. Um, but, you know, I want to see also, not just as a, as a government employee and as a workforce planner, but I want to see it as a taxpayer, what the data looks like from, from agency to agency. And so if we take that a step further, we also kind of need these sort of descriptive and predictive analytics around all of the workforce data uh, so that we can make more informed data-driven decisions and sort of position ourselves as an employer of choice, because that's going to be really important for us to have people in the future to, to complete our mission. But in my experience, I'm not really seeing that government-wide data is informing any of our strategic decisions. And we're just not there yet in, in terms of like our data modernization journey, which I think is kind of what we're on right now is it is a long journey. This is we're going to have to play the long game. Is that, you know, the obstacle? Clearly, every, as you noted, agencies have their own data about their workforce. So my guess would be that it's more of a, a policy obstacle than it is a capability. I mean, to bring the government brings together its data every year in budget activity. It brings together its data for a number of other uh, purposes. Is it just that, you know, this one's not something that they've been, that they have addressed yet? I'm not sure because I'm not, I'm not entirely confident that I'm invited to those conversations. But so, for example, I've worked at five different agencies for the past five years or no, eight years. I'm at eight years now. 
you know, we're, we're running these really sort of cumbersome reports and, but the HR practices that I've seen, um, I wouldn't call them decisions driven by data. And I, I think that's just because we're not interconnected. So what I was doing over with DOD and the, the systems that I was using there were vastly different from say, for example, the systems at the USDA. And then take that even a step further. I've worked at two different agencies within the department of USDA and those each agencies weren't even using the same HR systems. So if you're looking at that from the lens of say a, a departmental management, how, how do you know what's going on at just the different agencies that you're responsible for? So I don't know if a policy has to be made to get everyone on the same platform or if there's, there's talk in the future about doing that, but it would absolutely be beneficial, at least to the HR practitioners that are using that to make those strategic hiring decisions or for people like me who are doing workforce planning. That's really interesting. You mentioned onboarding is sort of where I guess most of the data exists. So apart from the data side, let's talk about the process, the HR professionals. Like what onboarding or or even backing up like a, original hiring efforts, that whole process, what are the ones that you've seen? You don't have to name names if you don't want to, or feel free to, to highlight best practices or examples where there was something that could be a shining, like a beacon, a shining star example where data was used for hiring and onboarding in a way that could be maybe standardized or a model for others? Really good question. Well, I guess maybe, let me ask it a little bit differently. The practices themselves, and, and we're trying to drive out bias, right? Hiring should represent the American people. Hiring should represent the communities that are in that sort of business domain, right? Because the, even that is sort of part of the process. So the practices or the policies on the HR side, what are some of the things that can drive, you know, diversity, inclusion, and equity throughout the onboarding process? And then presumably the data would theoretically be able to come behind those practices. Well, I think, you know, the government uses several hiring authorities, which are meant to have a diversified workforce. We've got different, we've got Schedule A hiring practices to um, provide access to government jobs for disabled people. We've got hiring authorities to provide access for veterans, disabled veterans, recent graduates. We oftentimes, and I'm, I, I really look at the landscape of talent, I'm noticing kind of an increase of job advertisements to just the, the public in general, which is kind of where I'm thinking we need to go. So oftentimes we advertise jobs to be sort of internal to government, those competitive jobs where they're sort of seeking individuals who already have government experience. But I'm seeing more public announcements go out. And so in terms of hiring practices, those are there and meant to bring us in a, a diverse population. Um, but one of the weird, interesting things that I think that came out of COVID is we've actually, uh, and OPM was really ahead of the curve in terms of like sort of benchmarking best practices. They were advocating for these sort of alternative work schedules and teleworking, and they put out policy a long time ago to encourage those types of practices. But departments and agencies, they can still adopt what they want to adopt. They're, they're not mandated to do it. They just are, they, they have a policy there that says they're allowed to do it. And so when we have COVID, one of the things that I've talked to leadership about is this provides us an opportunity to offer remote work opportunities to individuals that might not have access to a government job in the, in the localities in which they're at, because oftentimes they do want you to come in. And so that's one of the things I'm advocating, but whether or not that takes hold in the future of work is sort of to be determined. That's great. 
So let's talk about the talent landscape that you're seeing. So where are the responses to, I guess, those those new public-facing advertisements for work? Like, is the message getting out to the sort of more diverse workforce that we're looking for about these jobs, remote work included, right, which opens up the pool and the accessibility? Like, how would you gauge some of those efforts to, to get the word out? And then the people on the other end, where are sort of the target audiences and, and where's the workforce that, that we need to attract into the federal community? Well, the workforce that we need to attract into the federal community is hands down the Gen Z talent. And that's where data comes in, right? We can run, and again, these are these are somewhat siloed reports. I'm, I'm sure they can put out a tasker to, to all agencies to give that demographic data. We just don't have eyes on it and it's not real time and it's not immediate. But absolutely, we need to be looking at the data and saying to ourselves, how many, how much of our workforce is representing Gen Z talent? And we need to grow that because on the flip side of it, we've been reporting for years that the federal government is expected to have approximately 30% of their staff turnover. They called it the gray wave. They've called it, I mean, predominantly the gray wave (laughs) is what most reports call it. But they've been anticipating for a long time and maybe they heard it so much that they just eventually tuned it out. But They've known for a long time that a big portion of our workforce was going to turn over. And, and, and that generation, essentially the boomer generation, it did represent one of the largest workforces that have ever, that's ever been. But the Gen Z workforce is now the new biggest generation. And, and so we have to capitalize on the size of it, but also not just the size of it. So I sat in on a, on a retreat once and um, a very, very high up in government um, woman came to speak and she coined this term digital native, which I've said again and again, and I've actually heard a couple people now um, say it as well, but they really are digitally native. There's a lot of skills that we don't need to teach them. And especially when it comes to data, they're so used to information being at their fingertips and just so used to, to information coming in from so many different sources and whether their brains have just sort of been wired to categorize and separate and consume all of that at really a rapid pace, that is, it still needs to be viewed as a skill and we need more of it. Yeah. To, to string together your, you know, the previous statement about, you know, remote work, I mean, you know, if there is a silver lining at all to, to COVID, it is the adjustments that employers were making in terms of expectations for employees. Uh, you know, I, I think what, again, you know, cite a, a DOD change where they're really evaluating this idea of how do we keep our talent in the active duty workforce? Well, if we didn't make these folks move all the time and we realize that you don't actually have to come to D.C., which is the dreaded posting for most of the military, but you can have the job that's located at the Pentagon because we're not really getting together. You take that to this Gen Z community, which I think has really embraced this I can live everywhere, anywhere I want. I can be in a city. I can go out to Montana. I can, you know, go, you know, take over my grandparents' farm. Suddenly, the, the government's probably ends up being one of the most flexible outside of a few areas, in, intelligence community, et cetera, of being able to offer great career paths and meaningful work and the opportunity to work remotely. I mean, I'm curious, you know, as you all, you know, look at, the data and who's applying for these jobs? Are you beginning to see, like I graduated college in 94, people that were gonna go work for the government came to Washington, DC. And that's pretty much where they started. They may have ended up in 
USDA in Kansas or something later, but they, they came to Washington, D.C. Are you seeing more applicants for you know jobs that maybe are you seeing a greater number of applicants for jobs where location isn't necessarily a, a specified thing? That's a good question. I don't necessarily look at job application yeah. data. Um, but interestingly enough, I did look at a dashboard recently that was comparing 2000. And so the data, again, it was for, for 2020 because we didn't have full eyes yet on all of 2021. That takes a minute for us to get in, in format. But I was looking at comparison from 2019 to 2020, and that's exactly what it demonstrated. It showed how many of our of our workforce, again, OPM workforce, was in Washington, D.C. in comparison to 2020. And I noticed a big increase. So I think that that is going to be the wave of the future. But one of the things that you had said earlier that I thought was interesting was um, this new generation, they're digitally nomadic. And, and that's one of those great things. Um, so I think we need to, again, capitalize on who they are rather than trying to fit them into our structure of this is who we are and you need to fit into the little boxes and the little things that we've designed, um, which I generally refer to as like my grandpa's workforce. <laughs> I, I think we need to kind of adjust a little and fit into how they are and use some of the, the unique skills and just unique attributes that this generation is going to provide us. I think we're going to see a, a huge growth. And you mentioned earlier, too, about the military. So I'm prior military. I didn't have a very exciting enlistment, but my husband did 22 years. And I actually had moved back and forth over the Atlantic twice for his career. We lived in England for four years and we lived in Germany for four years. And I was constantly giving up my job and moving around in support of his career and then just kind of picking up what I could. You know, it takes you a little while, six months or so to kind of get in and get a job. And then no sooner did I feel like I was making progress and I turn around and have to give up that job to follow him somewhere else. So just recently we came out with the new hiring authority for military spouses. And so hopefully we'll do a better job of supporting them and making sure that they can keep their careers, hopefully with the federal government and also continue to move around and support their, their active duty spouses. Yeah, I, and to go back to your you know digitally nomadic statement, I mean I've I've seen folks working for organizations, big consultancies that that believe now they have the opportunity to go do the van life thing. I mean, I'll, to shout out without saying the name of the individual, brilliant person working in data for one of the big consultancies who suddenly said, I I'm going to go uh, spend three months in a van, you know, big skier and continued to manage the workload from wherever that van was parked. And, you know, when when the government and employers are able to, you know, offer that person the opportunity to be digitally nomadic, I think uh, you, you end up, you know, building a uh, good foundation of those those individuals who really are, you know, brilliant folks. Yeah. I mean, and when we talk about this, too, we again, thinking about how the workforce has changed. If we look back in history quite a bit, right? And we see my grandfather's workplace. At his workplace, they were smoking. At his workplace, they had a cabinet full of liquor and they poured a glass, probably at like four o'clock. And then they went home and had a sherry with their wife. The, the workforce was designed differently. And, and not to say that we haven't moved away from that, but we don't look back at those times and go, man, I can't believe we've changed that much. We look at it as a positive. We probably shouldn't smoke and drink at work. And so I think we have to look at the changes that we're going to be going through and we have to embrace those and accept that 10 or 20 years from now, they're going to be positive too. And you can look at data and do these Zoom calls 
or these Teams calls, and you can send emails from anywhere in the world. And that's going to be advantageous to us. We just have to allow ourselves to accept that it's going to be different. But change is scary. I mean, there's there's people that their entire their entire job is focused on change management. So we know that people are resistant to that. Yeah. So what's funny, the last four years, I, I got a change management certification recently. <laughs> so it's two years ago now, but it, it feels recent for sure, because the lessons keep coming up. So sort of our theme on the Data Reveal podcast, Monica, is we get to the big reveal and we never know until we're talking like, ooh, this is a big deal. But this is a really big deal. And I, the reason I'm saying it like this is, as we were talking a little bit beforehand and sort of just you know, trading notes on what, what we've been doing over the years, on the DOD side, I used to work in the area where they're predicting sort of the requirements of technology for future conflict. And that just put my mind in like a change management frame that's kind of like a little bit esoteric, like, okay, what are we going to be fighting in the future? But let's dial that back, that kind of thinking, projecting to the future workforce. So you, we've just listed some interesting requirements, right? Like you need an infrastructure with some security and some mobility. You need probably to use your phone in every way that you can to do calls, but maybe not your laptop as much. So types of workflows, types of IT infrastructure and security sort of fall out of that picture of the future. And the military is good at the scenario planning and then they work back and then they hand a requirements officer, go buy this, right? Go build this or take what we already have, hey, engineers, combine it. So this is sort of the king or queen for a day conversation, right? Like if you could wave the magic wand and if the, the chief data officer community and the HR leader community that you're a part of, if they were to talk and say, all right, here's what the data needs of that Gen Z workforce really amount to. And then how do we get that there? Is that the kind of thing we talk, you know, we talked about policy at the beginning. We're getting, now we're scratching on culture, right? Like it's a lot to ask what I just said. There is no magic wand for this. But the world of data, young people are used to massive platforms, you know, all the social platforms, everybody in the world has that, billions of users. What do you think could be done to attract the Gen Z talent into a more modernized kind of data world? Like what, just picture what that would look like for that mobile worker, the person that you would, like you're sitting across a table from a Gen Z group and you're predicting what their future career could look like. And they're going to, they're the ones that are going to shape this world, right? We're going to block and move things out of the way so that they could come and actually build this. But what would you like to be able to say to them and say, look, here's the kind of tools we're going to give you when we hire day one, you're going to have this in your hand. Is it an iPad or a phone? And that's it. Is it some heavy voice activation? Some, I don't know, like a helmet with, you know, you can <laughs> see each other in meetings. And what do you think? the tech world can do to make that possible? Because I totally agree. And I think that is a big reveal, like this nomadic digital generation of Gen Z. That's a long-term, like they're going to be the next, if they retire in you know 30 years, 40 years, the changes that they're going to bring are going to be massive. But we have to do some kind of leap to get there. What goes into that leap? What do we got to give them? And what do we got to do? Well, I think the government, I mean, I love all of that, right? Oh, and for the record, I do often act like I'm a queen with a magic wand. I don't think <laughs> it's usually well-received in government. But I'm like, we should do this and we should do this. You should have a car and you should have a car and everybody should have a car. But yeah, that, that usually doesn't work out for me. 
I think government has recognized that we need to modernize. Again, I cover down for the IT group, and so I hear a lot of things. You know, they're talking about the cloud. I, I still am kind of a, a Gen, uh, Gen Z. I think I'm Gen Z. I'm kind of a failure at it. I still don't understand what the cloud is or how to get things out of the cloud or where to find the cloud. But I'm really enamored with what they talk about, and I think it's great. Uh, recently, you know, to all of those, recently I've, I've sat in on some demos where they're, they are trying to talk about when you sit down for your government job, A, how are you applying for it? I genuinely um, get concerned sometimes about how those jobs are advertised. My husband's a grad student. He actually happens to be a, a grad student in a security field where he's sitting with a lot of these Gen Zers who are all getting master's degrees in cyber security. And I've gone to some of the functions and they are like, who are you? And I've introduced myself working for HR and the government. And then they proceed to ask me questions about government jobs. And they don't even know where to apply for them. And I'm a little terrified by that. That actually does scare me. And so I think modernizing it so that they can apply, because it's a lot of documents, upload this document, upload that document. And so I think, you know, if we're on LinkedIn, where these individuals can just sort of be told, like matched with jobs on LinkedIn, which I'm sure all of us are experiencing when we get on LinkedIn, it's telling you, hey, here's these five jobs I found for you. Um, making sure that our jobs are, are getting put in the hands of those individuals with those skills and then it's, it's easy for them to apply. They're not having to do it from a laptop. And then that whole uh, employee life cycle, they are taking a heavy look at that and trying to figure out, can they onboard from a cell phone? Can they do this from a cell phone? Are we making it easier? I know when I started my current job, they offered me an iPhone and I wanted to fall out of my chair. And I said, yeah, if you're sending out stuff, can you send me a uniform too? I'd never been offered anything like that before. They're like, do an iPhone or an iPad? I'm like, wow, this is so exciting. And so I think we're getting there. Maybe we're not getting there fast, but all of those things are are great. And I think we we probably, it's funny you should mention the helmet with the VR set. It's not a huge leap from what I just said the other day to our deputy CIO who was talking about um, when we come back in the office. And I think he probably thought I was crazy and that's fine. But I mentioned to him, but why don't you guys look at VR headsets? We're trying to structure technology around what we know today. And I don't believe we should be doing that. I believe we should be structuring our technology for tomorrow and many years down the road, because by the time we implement things, we're already going to be there. So I kind of think we should be doing those VR headsets for our meetings. <laughs> Love it. Back to the, uh, well, two things, actually. So you were talking cloud at the front there, which I think we all, even though Mark and Andrew and I talk about it, pretty much daily. We, we all still don't really know exactly what it is. But I, I was reading an article today where it was a, a state government, I can't remember which one off the top of my head, but they uh, hired a chief cloud officer, which was the first time I had heard that one. But back to the hiring practices, I have lived in the DC area for almost 20 years. My husband is born and raised here. We've both, I'd be lying if I didn't say that we've both applied for you know, one or 10 government jobs in the time that we've been here. And it, it's such an arduous process. And then you add into that some of the technologies that have been used for a while as far as, you know, scanning applications, but even more recently, uh, AI and machine learning to match applicants to jobs and the biases that exist there. It's just it seems like a, a brick wall, quite honestly, in entrance to the federal government. Sadly, I'm not going to disagree with you. So I mentioned that my husband is a grad student. He's going to be graduating in about a month. He did 22 years in the military in IT. 
shiny new masters. He's actually a um, disabled vet and he gets frustrated every week because I think now he's up to about 75 applications. And of course that breaks my heart, right? <laughs> someone who does workforce planning and someone works with IT now, he's not trying to do IT, but those are the types of problems we need to fix. It's, it's, it's those moments in time where you have these conversations and they stick with you. It was, it was a day on a patio with all of his, his fellow students and them being completely interested in the types of work that the government does and, and really wanting to know, how do you get these government jobs? This sounds great. And of course, I'm a huge advocate. I tell everyone I know, have you thought about a government job? Have you considered joining the military? I'm a big, you know, I'm, I'm, I try to inspire people to serve. And then I kind of know in the back of my mind, they're going to hit some hurdles. And so we don't have business cards. I've actually asked um, IT people. I said, hey, can we have like a digital business card? Is that a thing? Could I have like a QR code that I, someone scans and then it's kind of like my business card? Because I mean, business cards are dated. But I have tried to help them. I've had a couple meetings with them. I walk them through USA Jobs. I talk to them. I show them all the, the little codes. And USA Jobs is, you know, they're doing a great job. They're doing a lot. I see all their stuff on LinkedIn. They're trying to offer courses and classes and opportunities for people to learn how to apply for government jobs. But I think unless they themselves are applying and experiencing the timelines and all of the challenges, I just I just worry that we're not keeping pace with private sector, the instantaneous job application that you can do on LinkedIn. I've actually gone and applied for jobs on LinkedIn, not because I want to ever leave government but because I wanted to see what that experience and that timeline looked like myself, because I think you have to walk a mile in those shoes to truly understand. And I don't know. I don't know if we're doing that. Yeah, it's I'm hiring right now for roles on our team. And I'll tell you, the labor market is incredibly tight. The, the options that people face are, you know, that they, they have in front of them are are incredible, you know, particularly in the IT space. And I think, you know, generally the pool of folks you know, seeking work is a, a little bit tight. The process that, that Courtney brought up and that, that you sort of emphasized, I think extends into once you have the job, I think, you know, and talking to folks, and here's a, here's a topic that we've touched on a fair amount, which is engagement. And I think data plays a big, a big role. We, we've talked about data democratization uh, and building a culture that allows more participation in decision-making. Like if I look at my perception again external but i've spent 30 years you know working with government it's very it's like a very hierarchical manufacturing chain you guys build this widget and then you pass it up to this team that you know takes three widgets and puts this together and then passes it up to these you know these combined widgets and it uh, up to the top where ultimately some you know decision ultimately is made i think that is you know this younger generations i think are have an expectation of you know, they have a voice. They have so they grew up with social media. I'm heard. I can go viral. I don't it doesn't matter that I'm nobody. And I think they now come in uh, to government or a, a large enterprise and, you know, find it stifling that suddenly I'm, I'm smart. I understand what you're doing and I have ideas. And here we go. So, again, I look at it through the perspective of data. If, if I get more engagement with people working with data, we get diversity of thought. We've talked about that age, you know, perspective brought by you know, race, culture, upbringing, whatever, more better ideas about how I solve problems. I'm curious, you know, as you look at that, how, how important is beginning to shift 
the culture not only of who we bring in, but how we engage them in the work that government does. So you mentioned stifling. And, and I would agree, right? So in fact, I think in my Amazon cart right now, there's a book about um, leading without authority because by the way, I have none. And I do have ideas. I don't think I'd be on this podcast if I didn't have ideas. And it is hard to operate within your bubble or within your sort of hierarchical structure and make sure you don't step on any toes while still bringing your ideas up to the surface where you can create real change, especially since you're generally on boots on the ground, doing the work, impacted by the work, and you know what changes you need to bring about, or sometimes it's a lack of data in order to do your job well. I've experienced that as well um, at, at, other, at other agencies. And so I think one of the challenges with the stifling piece of it and the way it's designed is there are some outdated policies and criteria in creating organizational structures. I'm kind of hitting those right now with, with the work that I'm doing. We've got, for example, supervisor to employee ratios that we're trying to stick with. It's generally six to eight on the expectation. Um, I actually, I, again, I geek out on this stuff. So I go and read and try to understand what I'm seeing. And, and they say, okay, they've compared it to like a classroom. If you have really high performing students and you have a classroom that's way too big, teachers end up getting sort of distracted by the challenging students and then can't challenge those high performers. And if you have a class that's too small, then it's stifling because they're constantly over your shoulder and they're just a little too much and it, it doesn't help with, with creativity. And so we have to look at the workforce as just sort of an extension of that as we grow and think, well, we don't want a supervisor that's just breathing down the necks of individuals. What are you doing? What are you working on? And we also don't want the span of control so high that these individuals can't float their ideas up when they have them, or especially these Gen Z, they're so used to being heard immediately. It can be very frustrating if you can't get any FaceTime or have a meeting with your supervisor to say, hey, I have this great idea. It takes you like a, a week to get on their books. But unfortunately, the structures in which we have solidified in policy are, are not really meant to be, they're, they're pyramids, really. They're not keeping pace with what we're seeing in the future of work, which is matrix structures. And how do we do that? How do you work more on, I mean, we, we look project management it's everywhere in every job and every team and in every group and some aspect of your job, it doesn't matter if you're HR, your finance, you work in legal, project management is part of our everyday life, just like data literacy. It's part of our everyday life, no matter what your job is. And you have to work on both the team and then you have to report up to kind of a time card approver or a performance manager. But how do we bring that into the government workforce where so much of what we do is driven by policy and policies maybe that were dated in the 70s or 80s when that type of organizational structure was the predominant method? I don't know if anyone has an answer to this question, but it just came to mind and it was kind of the first time I've ever had that this thought. But you mentioned data literacy we were talking about how the Gen Z workforce that's going to be coming in is going to be digital, digitally native. What do we think the data literacy needs of this generation will be? And, and you know, how can we prepare for that? Because I think we've, we have, even at Click and with our partners, have developed this data literacy program, assuming that people aren't digitally native. So any, I, really anyone can answer that question. I'm just kind of curious. <laughs> Monica, you're, you're the, I'm, I have thoughts that are probably half formed. I will say, 
I did some graduate research on this, so I might say something, but I definitely want to hear what you have to say first. Um, I mean, here's the thing. I think we have to kind of dial it back from there and ask ourselves if we're even identifying data literacy as a skill that we need. And I, I would venture to say it's no. Do I know that we need it? Yes. Are there probably some leaders that know that they need it? Yes. But I'm a little concerned that we've identified that in the government as a needed skill set. I know, for example, um, there's AI capabilities today that, that exist, and are, it's great technology. It can kind of comb through your entire database of people and their resumes and things, and it can say, here's all the skills that you have and you can work with a workforce planner like me to design your organizations for the future and identify what skills you need and then kind of have that gap. And then we've heard these terms, upskilling, reskilling, and those are great, but you can't do any of that if you haven't identified the skills that you need and, or on the other side of that, if you haven't identified some of these types of skills, data literacy, we have data scientists, I see those advertised. Um, so I think that they identify that they need a couple but what concerns me is those are those are positions. Those are individuals that they're like you. You do the data. But I guess I would challenge that body of thought and say we all do it, just like we all do project management, just like we all do time management. And it's kind of one of those soft skills. Do you have organizational skills? Do you have communication skills? Do you have interpersonal skills? To me, that is not position-based. It's it's part of what makes up a person and, and their capability, I don't know, their toolbox, right? Mark, before you get uh, academic, I just one, you know, almost a, more of a question than a statement is, how do you quantify, I mean, the, the other problem of what skills do we have, how do I quantify data literacy? Like, so if we said we're going to upskill and we're going to build data skills, how do you legitimately quantify the skills in the workforce when, like you said, you can't even get a view of the workforce at a demographic level practically in its entirety, how do I now get down to something? And, and like you said, uh, at a cabinet level agency at the uh, component level, I don't really have a, a view at some of the large cabinets across the workforce. So one, how do you quantify it? And then how do you segment it? Because I, I think data literacy is one of these really interesting things. We ended up in a conversation recently where we'd said, okay, so I'm in HR and I'm data literate in HR. I know how to communicate HR data to an audience uh, and talk about it. All of a sudden I'm in a finance job because I've moved over and you know, money drives the government. Know your money, doesn't matter if you're in HR or anything. Do I know how to communicate money data? Am I, am I literate in financial data in the way that I am of personnel data? So it's like, it's a really, interesting challenge that we've got ahead of us that I think is gonna, it's gonna be a choose your own adventure type of uh, learning exercise. We're gonna make, we're gonna get to make some, uh, some rapid fire decisions along the way. I agree. And I don't think it's isolated to just government, right? I mean, again, I, I, I geek out on this. I mean, I, I go to, out and have drinks with or walk my dog with friends that are in the same types of field and we're up against the same challenges and they're, they're working in private sector. And again, they're bringing in technology um, and I, we're, we're poor for the government. We're kind of always like scrambling for money. And so I get really jealous when I hear from some of my private sector folks about some of the technologies that they're using or 
who they're bringing in because I'll find something, I'll read something in an article and I'll ask them, do you have, do you have this? Are you guys using this? Oh yeah, yeah. We have this and that. And, um, and I go back and I go and I beg my leadership. Can we please, 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 can we have it? Um, but I, I think technology is there. It's a tool. And so when we want to quantify anything or infer anything, I tend to think we just need to find the right technology, the right platform to do that. And, and to your question about data literacy, I really think it just boils down to visualization tools. So much of how we communicate these days is, is visually. Um, I don't remember what group it was, but they, we had a committee or panel discussion and then they sent a, a follow-up and it was this beautiful infographic of each speaker, like a, a character caricature of them, and then kind of their main speaking points. And my mind was blown. But then I thought, I'm not sure if that was an artist with a pencil or if that was some sort of technology that they use. And so I think it's just deploying the technologies in the correct way to augment, essentially, skill sets that we're missing. And then those individuals have the skills to maintain the technology that's augmenting what you don't have. It's just kind of a an organic circle. Wow. So I feel really inadequate in my recall of my academic research. But you hit on something. So I'll first of all, I'll say this. When you said you have no authority, obviously not true because you have a voice that carries this message about the ground truth that we're all living with that not always folks at the positions in the hierarchy get this, right? That's why you're an advisor, right? That's why it's so great for our country that you're in the role that you're in. And that's very authoritative. So I know that you know that, but but this really resonates. And I'm I'm hoping as others hear it, they'll see the light, right? And I think the light is what I'm hearing. There's this hierarchical culture that, you know, so many of us have grown up in, and there's this more viral culture, mobile, viral, you know, digital. And my research says and has said, that's why I've stuck with the whole process, is we have parts of our brain that do hierarchical things well, chain of command, who comes first, where does the money flow down, accountability, all that type of stuff. Like, we're wired for that. But this viral thing where we're connecting and navigating our way from point A to point B and creating these pathways and workflows, that's a different thing. And humans are the best at that. That's really like, so hierarchies actually undermine things that those digital natives need to kind of be unleashed to go do. So I guess waxing academic, that outdated policy framework, those outdated cultures, I think the translation from sort of hierarchical to viral or visual, that's sort of the world we're in. And leaders like you are going to be the ones that translate like the steps. So I have one thought based on what we've heard. Here's what I think the digital literate future could look like, right? So I'm going to put on my DOD. You hand After you've sort of gathered requirements, you hand it to the acquisition people. So here's five things I think we need. And then, Monica, this is probably silly, but it could be funny. So we need some QR codes, right? Here's who I am. Here's some info about me. We need cell. Everyone needs a cell phone, probably a tablet, no laptop, VR helmet, and a car. Did Government you say a issue. Car? <laughs> a car. Now I'm with some new capabilities. I'm pretty sure she said unicorn, not oh, car. Oh, yeah, a car. I, well, no, you said these. You know. You said government, you'd like to give people a car. 
what are we doing with cars? I'm working from home. I don't even drive the car I have. The, this is oh, the van. This these are your mobile tablet anyway. Oh, so mobile. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So so the cloud could what I'm what I'm getting at is the cloud could connect these things and make the digital workforce of the future. That's probably after Gen Z. This is the future Z Gen Z person. But I in other words, the technology is there to enable and unleash, silly or not. Like there's a lot of things that over time we could give them some more imaginative than others. But I think it's always about the people, right? So, Monica, you have the Gen Z audience in front of you. You're not selling them on the van that's connected to the cloud. They can go everywhere in the country and is connected to Jarvis and AI. This is your they're serving, right? They're they're going to have not the best technology, but they'll they'll have adequate, I'm sure. What do you say? You have one minute to sell this audience. What do you say maybe to my Gen Z kids, our Gen Z kids, the work of the government that's unique, the service that you do? It obviously isn't about totally on the cutting edge of technology. It's about the people or, or well, what is it? What do you think really everyone needs to know? Well, I, I grew up serving, right? I've, I joined the military at 17. So service has been a big part of my life. But I do believe that the Gen Z group really care. They're altruistic. And I think that they want to serve a greater good. I had an opportunity to get an MBA. Instead, I chose an MPA because I wanted to continue my life in service to my country. I really want to inspire those individuals to serve, to serve a greater good, because we have to get there together. I mean, sure. We have to be economical about it, and we're always going to need private sector. But the government also provides so many phenomenal services, and so many different agencies have missions that are impactful, whether it's the food that you eat, the passport that you use to travel and go be a remote worker, whether it's working at the VA uh, because you, you care about the medical profession, or working for NASA. All of those jobs exist. Everything that exists in private sector those opportunities exist in public sector, but with missions that serve everyone. And yes, we're never going to probably have all the best bells and whistles when it comes to IT. But the people that you're working with, they also are trying to serve and create a better world. And I, I sleep well at night knowing that I do that and knowing that I'm a part of this group that is passionate about being better, not just for our own country, but as good global citizens as well purpose-filled life and uh, uh, cheers to a purpose-filled life with all the data that you need to uh, help improve the mission. <laughs> yeah, Monica, that was wonderful. And anything that, you know, anyone can do to support that is helping the world. I mean, that's my takeaway. Those are, those are altruistic people. Give them the tools, give them the data, get out of their way. And that's a, that's a future I know I could bank on and I would love my kids to do that sort of thing. So thank you for being an example. Thank you for being an, a guest. And I hope those Gen Z folks are out there listening and the policy people that could make this go faster. Uh, those kids are out there. We need to get those jobs in their hands, that accessibility challenge. You're mounting it, overcoming it all the time. We could see that. Thank you. Excited to see how you continue to make an impact in these areas. Well, thank you. I appreciate you guys having me on. And I'm excited to hear how data continues to move us forward. Same. We'll do, uh, we'll do everything we can to help. Mm -hmm.